What is behind the Canadian government's hostility toward the Venezuelan government? How does the Canadian media's coverage of the government's operations against Venezuela compare with its coverage of the Haitian coup of 2004? What are the actual causes of the economic hardship facing Venezuela since 2014? Who are the opposition forces protesting in the streets, and what accounts for the violence erupting in their wake? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we attempt to deconstruct some of the messaging around the humanitarian crisis facing Venezuelans and the role of Canada, the U.S., and other outside countries in improving or worsening the situation. We'll hear from Canadian foreign policy critic and author Eve Engler about Canada's stance against the Latin American country. Then, we'll hear from Venezuela-based professor Steve Elner, who provides some background on the political and economic situation there. On this week's program, Venezuela Under Siege, the West's ongoing campaign against President Maduro. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 19th, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabeg Akin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the traditional territory of the Nihiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Seven of the 15 men suspected of being involved in an operation to kill Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi belonged to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's personal security and protection detail, Middle East Eye can reveal. The suspects went and ate dinner at the Saudi Consul General's residence after murdering and dismembering Khashoggi inside the consulate, a source in the Istanbul Prosecutor General's office also told MEE on Wednesday, as Turkish police finally gained access to the building on Wednesday. Most of them are high-ranking officers who accompanied the Crown Prince on diplomatic visits to the UK and France earlier this year. MEE has obtained a document from the Saudi Interior Ministry detailing their ranks, dates of birth, passport and telephone numbers, and when they accompanied bin Salman on trips abroad. All of them are members of the Crown Prince's Special Security Force. That comes from the article, Breaking, Seven of Bin Salman's Bodyguards Among Khashoggi Suspects, by David Hurst. Posted October 18th, originally appearing at Middle East Eye. Whatever happens regarding Khashoggi, the relationship between Washington and Riyadh is assured. Turkey, from first signs, is avoiding open confrontation. Murder, alleged or otherwise, can take place in certain circumstances, however brazenly executed. The brutality against Khashoggi, should it ever come to be properly aired, is but another footnote in the program of a kingdom indifferent to suffering from the saw doctor to the jet. And business remains business. That comes from the article, Embassy Disappearances, Jamal Khashoggi and the Foreign Policy Web, by Dr. Binoy Kampmark, posted October 18th. 
Citing unnamed sources, media reports claim Riyadh will say he died during a botched interrogation and planned to abduct him. What happened conducted without kingdom permission, parties involved to be held responsible. One report citing an unnamed individual familiar with Riyadh's plan claimed Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, approved Khashoggi's interrogation and abduction. The kingdom to try absolving him of responsibility for his death, shifting blame to an unnamed intelligence official. Why would Riyadh have dispatched a 15-member security team to Istanbul on the day Khashoggi disappeared inside the kingdom's Istanbul consulate, returning less than 24 hours later, if not to abduct and eliminate him, clearly wanting his criticism of regime policies silenced? Trump said he saw the report. Nobody knows if it's official, he said, clearly wanting nothing interfering with long-standing U.S.-Saudi relations. That comes from the article, Saudis to Admit Jamal Khashoggi Killed During Intervention, by Stephen Lentman, posted October 16th. Trump just dropped a bombshell when he alleged that missing Saudi dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi might have been murdered by rogue killers, which suggests that Riyadh didn't officially order his assassination, like many had been led to think after such claims began to spread around the world like wildfire last week. The mainstream media narrative was immediately suspicious because it claimed that the image-conscious Saudi crown prince Mohammed bin Salman or MBS, was so offended by Khashoggi's critical commentary about him that he ordered his dramatic torture, assassination, and subsequent dismemberment inside his country's Istanbul consulate in a daring move that would have reversed all of the soft power gains that he painstakingly and expensively through paid PR tried to make over the past three and a half years, if it was true. Furthermore, Khashoggi was closely connected with the American, Turkish, and Saudi deep states, so assassinating him in such a manner was bound to draw global attention. Now, however, it turns out that maybe MBS wasn't behind this killing after all, though cynics would immediately retort that this might just be a cover story to distract from the billions of dollars in bribes that the crown prince might have secretly paid out to the U.S. and Turkey over the past week in order to sweep the scandal under the rug. That's probably not what's happening, though, since it's much more plausible that rogue royals ordered this deliberately sloppy assassination in order to frame MBS and prompt enough international pressure against him that the king would be compelled to remove him as his heir. That comes from the article, Khashoggi Mystery, Rogue Killers or Rogue Royals, by Andrew Karibko, posted October 16th. Originally appearing at Eurasia Future. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The Canadian government joined with the U.S. in imposing sanctions on the Maduro government last year. Last month, the Trudeau government additionally called for Maduro to be referred to the ICC, its first such referral since the court was created 20 years ago. The highfalutin talk about Venezuela's human rights abuses and anti-democratic behavior is reflected to a certain extent by the Canadian media. 
and narratives of Venezuela's internally driven humanitarian crisis seems to warrant a humanitarian intervention of some sort. Are there more cynical motives behind the Trudeau government's diplomatic stance? To try to discern what drives Canadian policy in Venezuela, we're joined by Eve Engler, outspoken critic of Canadian foreign policy. He's currently on a multi-city tour, launching his latest book, Left Right, Marching to the Beat of, Cana- of Imperial Canada. So Eve Engler, thanks so much for joining us here in the CKW studio. Thanks for having me. Who do you see are the main antagonists that that seem to be driving Canadian policy? Well, I think the Canadian government's been uh, hostile to the transformations, the social transformations that are taking place in Venezuela now going back uh, 15, 20 years. what I think is pushing it right now, specifically, is they, they, send, they sense a certain amount of weakness for the government uh, in Venezuela, and they're sort of picking up on that. But, you know, the, 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 the particular interest driving Canada's hostility to the Venezuelan transformation, I think, is a mix of uh, Canadian corporate interests. And there's, you know, companies like uh, Crystal X that had their mine uh, uh, nationalized now going back uh, over a decade that has this big uh, $1.3 billion, I believe it is, uh, suit. Uh, they're trying to get Venezuela to pay that sum, uh, and there's a number of other Canadian mining companies that have been uh, uh, were hostile to, uh, you know, were nationalized or had their their interests uh, uh, challenged. Um, Peter Monk, the uh, the founder of Barrick Gold, the largest uh, gold company in the world, uh, had this uh, letter uh, in the Financial Times more than ten years ago now, where he, you know. He attacked the Chavez government, um, uh, and in public statements he made, he made it very clear that he he wanted nothing to do with investing in Venezuela or Bolivia or these other countries that were pursuing uh, socialistic, nationalistic, uh, uh, natural resource uh, uh, policy. So, so Canadian capital, which has you know a hundred billion or so invested across the uh, uh, Canadian mining capital, should I say, invested across the the hemisphere in, in Latin America. Um, has a clear self-interest in in um, maintaining uh, neoliberal uh, natural resource policies, having uh, the uh, mining, oil, and other sectors opened up to, to foreign capital. So, so independent of Canada's relationship to the U.S., there's clear uh, corporate reasons for being hostile to uh, to the Venezuelan government. Then, alongside that is, of course, the fact that Canada has uh, close ties to the U.S. and um, uh, you know uh, the Canadian leader very much tied in and Washington is engaged in a campaign against Venezuela and uh um, so I think it's a it's a mix of uh, of uh, different interests, and I think it's also important to remember that the Venezuelan a lot of the hostility to the Venezuelan government is not just that there is all kinds of uh, domestic reforms that were empowered the poor majority within Venezuela that that were uh, viewed as a negative from the standpoint of Ottawa or Washington, but also that the Venezuela really led charge to you know create ALBA, the Bolivarian Alliance of the Americas, uh, um, UNASUR, the uh, initiatives to break the region away from American domination. That was uh, uh, very much uh, opposed by uh, by the Harper government, the Stephen Harper government in Canada, and obviously by uh, um, by the Bush administration in the U.S., uh, Obama administration. Um, so, so there's a. There's a number of different reasons for being hostile to the Venezuelan government, but the the, the Trudeau government has really uh, led the charge in uh, in the past year and a half uh, in campaigning against the Venezuelan government 
actually at a level that I'm surprised at how activist and hostile they've actually been. That was my impression as well. Like I mentioned in the introduction, I mean, the first time this country has ever sent, uh, you know, referred a country, any country to the uh, the ICC. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of the things you were saying about Canadian corporate interests in Venezuela, uh, it sounds like a, a cut, a copy and paste of, of Chile in 1973. What are your thoughts about like what what what's the specific interest in Venezuela? Well, well, I think I think I think it's a, again it's a mix of uh, corporate interests and uh, being Canada being aligned with the U.S. But but it's uh, why we see that um, the campaign picking up as it is today is because. Um, there's a, a weakness of the government in Venezuela. There's a, there's, a, there's a weakness that goes back a number of years. There's economic, major economic problems in the country. Uh, uh, there's, very importantly, when there was the soft coup in Brazil, you went from a, a workers' party government that was generally sympathetic to the Venezuelan government to a government that was very hostile. Uh, simultaneously, you had a change in government to the right in Argentina. Um, uh, so, so there's a regional shift um, that's, I think, played a really enabled the Washington Canadian campaign, and uh, and Christian Freeland, Canada's foreign minister, has really picked up on that, and has really been like an activist. I mean, she's going around to uh, Central American and Caribbean countries where Canada has a fair bit of leverage, and pushing them to join the the campaign, the the so-called Lima group of governments hostile to Venezuela, and then you have the Canadian government. Um, Funding opposition groups within Venezuela, and, and uh, I quoted this a number of times. The uh, Canadian ambassador, that uh, when he resigned last year in, in uh, Caracas, he told the Ottawa Citizen pretty openly that Canada was supporting opposition groups in in uh, in Venezuela. Um, and he frames it all, of course, under the human rights kind of uh, rhetoric. Um, but this is kind of stuff that if if uh, you know if the uh, if the Russian ambassador in Canada was to have publicly uh, made that declaration to a Russian newspaper after after resigning. This would be a huge, you know, political scandal in Canada of Russian intervention within within Canadian political affairs. But it, you know, passes without any uh, without any comment in uh, in uh, in the Ottawa Citizen because it's you know it's understood uh, that Canada just ipso facto is is uh, is you know a force for good, a benevolent you know human rights advancing um, um, uh, force within Venezuela. And now you have the Canadian government bringing the Venezuelan government to the International Criminal Court. Um, uh, in what has to be viewed as an incredibly hostile act, uh, uh, and then and just you know and and quite frankly just ridiculous on the face of it. I mean, there's dozens of places in the world that have worse human rights uh, records today, let alone go back over the last twenty years. Um, uh, you know, for instance, let's there's a much stronger uh, uh, case to bring Canada to the International Criminal Court, or you know, Paul Martin and Jean Chrétien to the International Criminal Court for what they did in Haiti in 2004 with the coup in Haiti that led to thousands of people being killed and overthrew an elected government. Um, than there is to bring uh, Maduro or the Venezuelan government to the to the International Criminal Court. But of course, you know, we won't you won't even hear about that in the in Canadian media. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Haiti because I mean that's. Largely where your work uh, began or in your, your published work. I mean, even before you wrote the Black Book on Canadian Foreign Policy, you co-authored with Anthony Fenton Canada in Haiti in which you brought up, the fa- brought up Haiti. Um, and, and one of the points you brought up in that book was that uh, in kind of coming around full circle with this latest book is that left groups like Alternative and, and uh, Demo- uh, 
development and peace and, and others are, are are supporting the narrative about uh, you know the, the, you know Haiti's internal uh, unrest and and the need to uh, you, I mean they don't necessarily advocate for outright military intervention but that narrative does they're supporting the narrative that propels the military action so I'm I'm wondering then what uh, your thoughts are when we look at Venezuela if you could compare the two in, in terms of how Canada has, I don't know, finessed the approach, or or has there been some uh, improvements in terms of resisting that, uh, you know, exploitive uh, Canadian policy? Well, one comparison, just on the left comparison, to to take a look at the NDP's position on uh, on Venezuela over the last few years, it's it's outrageous. I mean, Elan Lavadier, the NDP foreign critic, has in some cases been cheerleading this this campaign to weaken the government and prodding uh um both the Harper government and and uh, and the Trudeau government to be more hardline against the uh, Venezuelan government um which is um, it, we, I mean it's just, it's that should just be viewed as a total embarrassment for for any NDP member that uh, you know uh, um uh, has any sense of, of internationalism. Um, now, in terms of comparisons with Haiti, in Haiti, yes, and, and uh, as you mentioned, there was a whole bunch of NGOs, Canadian government-funded NGOs, mostly in Quebec, um, that were operated in Haiti that uh, very much justified the coup, um, uh, sometimes justified the, the political violence, the repression against the um, Against poor neighborhoods that were were supportive of the of the Jean Bertrand Aristide government that was that was ousted, um, uh, you know you see some of the parallels in terms of the whole uh, funding of opposition groups. Uh, in, in in that was a big part. You know, the Canadian government was involved in funding opposition, civil society opposition opposition groups in Haiti, and that um, uh, very much enabled uh um justified the coup it, it weakened the the Aristide government it you know built up internal opposition to the Aristide government and it and it provided a bit of a left cover a sort of progressive cover for what was really just naked imperial aggression um and you have some of the same kind of dynamic going on in Venezuela today uh, just a few weeks ago you had uh, some uh, uh, Venezuelan officials, uh, civil society, uh, human rights groups brought to Ottawa for uh, a parliamentary committee meeting and, and were there calling for responsibility to protect, um, um, which is you know, sort of uh, you know form of foreign intervention to you know at, at the extreme end to, to oust a, to you know to violently oust a, oust a an elected government. Um, so you know the sum of the playbook is the same. I think that um, the difference is, of course, in that um, Venezuelan government, while it's weak, weakened today. I mean, it's a it's a you know a fairly wealthy um, country relative. I mean, Haiti is a infinitely poorer place, and um, you know if you spend uh, ten twenty million dollars in supporting opposition groups in Haiti, you go, you get a you can get a lot uh, a lot done because people are so poor and because uh, you know the country is uh, so weak uh, so vulnerable to to foreign intervention so so the 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 scale of um, of what they've been able to do in Venezuela is nothing like what they were able to do in in in, in Haiti and and uh, and you know the the human toll of course was also that much worse in the case of uh, in the case of Haiti I'd like to bring up the issue of oil because Venezuela is a, a major producer of heavy oil that uh, goes to uh, Gulf Coast refineries. The Canadian government are, um, well, let's face it, rabid supporters of uh, uh, pipelines to remove to, to uh, move uh, tar sands oil uh, 
Keystone in particular to the Gulf Coast. So Canada and Venezuela are competitors. So do you see, for for uh, that uh, refinery capacity? Do you see oil as a, a major factor in the uh, Canadian position? I mean, I think I do. I don't see it. I don't see. Um oil competition between Canadian companies and Venezuelan uh, oil producers. Well, Venezuela did, like, they nationalized their, their oil, right? Yeah, that, that's the more the issue. I don't, I don't see the, the, the competition between Canadian oil interests and Venezuelan oil interests as necessarily being central to understanding Canada's policy. Um, it may play a peripheral role, but I think that the, that the, the issue, Venezuela, of course, is a, is a, is a serious geopolitical prize and a and uh, you know potentially a serious corporate prize because there is so much oil and there is the potential to make a lot of profits off of extracting that. And one of the things that the Chavez government did, while the oil had been nationalized much earlier, it had been sort of parceled off uh, to a large extent to private companies, and there was all kinds of different uh, um, uh, agreements with uh, the, 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 the state-owned company had with um, with. Uh, uh, foreign uh, oil interests and the Chavez government lessened those and didn't completely eliminate but lessened those and really took the company back into into uh, you know the s- state hands that is no doubt that that is you know central to explaining the hostility to the to the Venezuelan government and that's when I was talking about Canadian mining interests and, and Canadian capital being opposed to more nationalistic uh, resource policies that's the type of uh, policies uh, some of the policies they would have been uh, very much uh, hostile to because they want uh, uh, and, and it's also important to, 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 to point out how this took place when this process was taking place by the, the Chavez government this was at the time of just sort of neo, more and more neoliberal reforms right everything else was going in the other direction of yeah. opening it up to more and more foreign foreign uh, um, uh, corporations and and Chavez's government really sort of uh, began the process of turning that that around uh, going back in another direction, um, and I think that that's um, you know there's a lo- whole lot of hostility because of uh, because of their role in, in in you know pushing back against this this neoliberal agenda that was really dominating the hemisphere and uh, as to, and to some extent has uh, has been reversed partially in the, in the hemisphere. Mm. Now, uh, not too long ago, I believe it was September 11th, uh, the CBC's the uh Our national broadcaster uh, had a a special segment uh, devoted to Venezuela, and it it seems – I mean arguably it it was very skewed. I mean you had these senior um, reporters, uh, Adrian Arsenault on the Colombia-Venezuela border, and we've got uh, seasoned anchor and Anna Maria Tremonti, and they they didn't seem to – you know challenge uh, these imperial narratives at all and it, it I, I think it, some would argue it was an outright propagandistic uh presentation and i'm curious to know because canadian media around the time of of haiti uh, the coup in haiti was was not terribly uh um you know, was, was not great but it seems as if it had been better than what we're seeing now i mean would you agree and then if so what would be the uh what would account for that change in in tone? No, I, I wouldn't necessarily. Wouldn't agree. agree. I wouldn't. I wouldn't agree with that. Uh, um, I, mean, I felt like I heard at least some contrary uh, perspectives. I mean, well, if anything, they just kind of ignore it more than anything else. Yeah, that would be the main thing. But if you actually where they didn't where they don't ignore Haiti is in in Quebec and in the Quebec media, Radio Canada particularly is just horrible on Haiti. Um, uh, Le Devoir actually generally a, a sort of 
viewed as more progressive uh, newspaper. Again, horrible in Haiti. Um, uh, I did a in the propaganda system book. I did a I looked into uh, media that had Canadian media that had covered uh, the uh, Ottawa initiative on Haiti, which was the meeting 13 months before the 2004 coup, where Canadian officials brought American, French, and organization American states officials together just outside uh, uh, Ottawa, and uh, and they decided basically to oust the Aristide government. Um, if I remember correctly, uh, no newspaper ha- in the English language has looked into that meeting, even though it was reported on at the time before the coup. No paper has 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 done any investigation of that meeting subsequently. So your Globe Mail, Toronto Star, all of the newspapers across the country um, have just you know, ignored this this meeting that we is now public knowledge about Canada plotting to oust an elected government, which it then did, um, and and newspapers didn't consider that to be to be a story, but but with regards to Venezuela today, there's no doubt the media is is uh, is I mean totally hostile, and you know you think something like with the on the Colombian border, and there's clearly a, an issue with with uh, with Venezuelans um, uh, emigrating or fleeing um, the country. But but you know there was no reporting about the millions. I think it was a couple million Colombians that had been living in, and some many still living in Colum- in Venezuela had been living in uh, Venezuela for for you know a decade or more, um, uh, being you know fleeing from the violence in in Colombia. That wasn't something to make into a big humanitarian crisis because it didn't serve the geostrategic interests of the U.S. and Canadian government um, at the at the time. So so the media is 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 um, is very hostile to uh, uh, to the uh, to the Chavez government. I don't I don't think that there's uh, you know um, it, it gets it definitely gets more coverage than than the case of Haiti. Um, um, uh, but but I don't think I think it's the, still the pattern is more or less the same, which the media is the, the the journalists the editors the dominant media are very much tied to the press releases the comments coming out of the Canadian embassy coming out of global affairs canada coming out of canadian officials and they they tie their uh, their perspective of the of the of the situation very much to uh, to the to the what the what the canadian state and and us uh, politicians are saying so what to then, I mean, given what uh, we've seen over the past several years, well, decades, uh, about, you know, with with left groups uh, often, you know, propelling these imperial motives, which is a large, which is, you know, the thrust of your recent book, what do you see as a, a, a solution? How, how could Canadians work to, to turning the tide? What realistic chances are there that we could redirect our foreign policy? Well, I think the solutions are, you know, what we're doing here, which is building up, you know, alternative media that's not uh, in the pocket of of the powerful. Um, you know, the realistic question. This is there's no doubt. This is a, um, you know, a major political fight. It's not going to be dealt with uh, overnight. The political culture in this country is is so pro imperialist, is so tied in with U.S. Uh, geostrategic uh, worldview that you can't expect, uh, you know, a political party that that um, 
that wanted to, you know, win votes and win seats um, in the current political climate to have what one, what you know would be viewed as a just foreign policy. You can have, I think, they can have a much better foreign policy than they currently do. But but that's where you get into it's it's a question of activism and it's a question of building social movements, um, you know, alternative media that's willing to uh, challenge the the injustices of Canadian foreign policy and challenge the whole political culture. Um, um, and uh, you know, it's an incredible amount of work. Is it is it uh, is it realistic that we're going to have that done over the next couple of years? No, it's not realistic. Is it over the next decade? Probably not. I see it as this long term uh, political political battle. In the short term, there there can be victories, and there can be you know there's I think there's there's there have been some victories. I mean, the Iraq two thousand three, Canada didn't give the Bush administration what they wanted the most, which was the joining the coalition of the willing. They still supported the war in many different ways, but they didn't give them what they wanted the most, and that was because of the mass popular protests. So so, so there are you know, small victories to be won in this long uh, uh, political battle, but... Um, but you know, it's a it's pretty deep. Uh, we have some pretty deep political cultural problems in this country um, that need to be uh, challenged and uh, and overcome. Okay, Eva Engler, you. I want to thank you very much once again for uh, supplying us with uh, the, this unique perspective on our foreign policy. As you just indicated, it's uh, much needed at this time. Thanks. Eve Engler is the author of the uh, his most recent book is Left Right Marching to the Beat of Imperial Canada. If you want more on the tour and on the book and want to read any of his articles, you can visit the website yvesengler.com. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. There has been a relentless stream of condemnation from Canada and other Western countries condemning the Maduro government for its role in the decline of social standards in Venezuela since 2014, prompting a massive exodus of its residents to Colombia and abroad. To take a closer look at the root causes of the crisis, we got hold of a longtime resident of Venezuela and close observer of the political and economic determinants shaping the country. Steve Elner is professor at the Universidad de Oriente in Puerto La Cruz, Venezuela, where he has taught economic history since 1977. He's the author of numerous journal and magazine articles and several books, including The Pink Tide Experiences, Breakthroughs and Shortcomings in the 21st Century, Latin America, scheduled for release in 2019. He joins us here in the CKUW studio uh, on the occasion of the Winnipeg leg of his tour of Canada and the U.S. to provide his perspective on events in Venezuela. Welcome, sir. Thank you for the invitation, Michael. The insinuation in the coverage that I've seen in the mainstream is that the uh, Maduro government and the Chavez government before it uh, had mismanaged the economy. They were too dependent on oil exports. And now with low commodity prices and oil, they are not uh, they're not not able to uh, properly address the conditions of the people. And so I I'm wondering if you could help fill out the picture for us. Yes, Michael. Yes, um, there's no question about it that the economic situation is dire. Um, There's a problem of hyperinflation uh, in which people are forced to purchase items practically the day that they um, 
receive their wages. If they wait too long, if they wait a week or two weeks, then the prices have gone up so much that their purchasing power will not be the same. So the economic situation is very difficult, and that explains the exodus of a large number of people of all social classes and all ages as well. Um, With regard to the explanation for the economic problems, I would say that there are three explanations or three factors because they're not three different explanations. I think that there are three factors, and I think that each factor amounts to, let's say, 33.3%, about a third of of the weight in explaining why Venezuela is facing this crisis situation. The first explanation, which I really don't think that anybody can really disagree with, is the price of oil. Venezuela has always been dependent on oil, going back to the 1920s when Venezuela became the world's leading exporter of oil, a status which it maintained until 1970. So that always, you know, throughout the, the 20th century, when the price of oil declined, there were economic problems. When the price of oil increased, uh, people lived well and the prosperity uh, reached uh, all sectors of the population. So in 2000 um, and f- 2014, 2015, the price of oil declined rapidly. Uh, it nosedived. And that it was inevitable that that would affect the Venezuelan economy in a big way. You mentioned the dependence on the oil. The Venezuela, Venezuela has been dependent on oil uh, since the 1920s. Uh, previously, it was an export of, of coffee and cacao, um, but oil displaced those two products. So that Venezuela, since the 1920s, has always been dependent, and oil-producing countries are more dependent on that product than other exporting countries. In other words, Chile that exports uh, copper, uh, historically Bolivia exported tin. Well, the dependence on oil among the uh, OPEC countries uh, is much greater than those other countries. So this, this is a constant in Venezuelan history, and this is the first factor. The second factor is that there has been uh, a campaign against Venezuela uh, going back to when Chavez was, was first elected, practically when he was first elected. Um, and as a result, that has affected the Venezuelan economy in a big way because uh, Venezuela is dependent on the United States economically, both for exports and historically for imports. Um, that, that has declined somewhat. But, uh, for instance, when President Obama declared Venezuela a threat to U.S. national security and then reissued that executive order a year later, it was inevitable that U.S. companies would either pull out of Venezuela or cease investing in Venezuela. So that, that, that's what, what ha- happened. At the time of that executive order, um, companies like Ford, um, Kimberly Clark, which produces um, personal use items, um, Clorox, and other companies pulled out completely. And in the oil industry, the one company that hadn't pulled out, um, Chevron, ceased to make new investments in Venezuela. So that had an effect the Venezuelan economy in a big way. Now under Trump, the situation is even uh, more serious in that Trump has established a financial embargo 
uh, which means that Venezuela, for instance, uh, the Venezuelan government cannot issue uh, bonds in order to refinance the public debt, which is something that all countries do uh, when it faces economic difficulty. Um, they refinance the, 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 the public debt, the foreign debt, and Venezuela cannot do that, at least in the United States or through banks, uh, because of that financial embargo. And there are other aspects of that embargo also, which seriously affects the Venezuelan economy. So that's the second factor, Michael. And I would say that that represents, you know, 33.3% of the, of the weight of the difficulties that Venezuela is facing. And the third factor is, in my opinion, um, President Maduro has not um, taken bold but necessary moves in order to face the problem of the exchange rate. Um, and that problem dates back to really the uh, attempt to overthrow Chavez back in 2000. You mentioned that the problems stem back to the Chavez period. And we can say that those the exchange rate system that Chavez established, he established in response to the attempt to overthrow his government through a, a, a general strike that it was, was really a um, lockout, a company lockout. They closed their doors. The uh, Chamber of Commerce um, declared a strike on the Chavez government. That was back in 2002, 2003. It lasted two months. And as a result, it was a problem of capital flight. And Chavez established this system of exchange controls, which has played into the current um, economic crisis and has a lot to do with the problem of, of hyperinflation. Mm. On, on that point, I know that Maduro has been uh, calling for uh, a new uh, system of, of international payments and uh, uh, creating a basket of currencies uh, as in an attempt to free itself from the U.S. dollar. Right. And uh, it just recently was announced that they're launching a Venezuelan national cryptocurrency right. called the Petro, right. which is backed by oil, gold, iron, and uh, diamonds, diamonds, as right. I understand it. Uh, and so that stipulates that all oil sales in and out of the country has right. to be uh, finan- paid for in petros. Uh, does this uh, amount to uh, um, a smart move, a necessary move in that instance? Well, again, uh, it has a lot to do with the perception uh, that Venezuela uh, is 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 in a situation – the Venezuelan government is in a situation – of uh, at least in the medium-term future, resolving some of these economic problems. I mean, currency is really psychological. A a bill isn't worth anything in itself. And the dollar, since Bretton Woods, going back to the uh, end of World War II, uh, has been the international currency precisely because uh, people might not like the United States, but they uh, realize that the United States is a power uh, so there is a respect for the United States. Um, and the same thing with any currency. The, the Petro is backed by oil and these other minerals that you mentioned. Um, but if people believe that this isn't going to work, then they're not going to want to have anything to do with the Petro. And uh, as soon as uh, um, President Maduro announced the system of the Petro, uh, President Trump uh, uh, forbid uh, any U.S. citizen or anybody living in the United States from purchasing the petrol. So 
that has a big effect because if the if the world's most important country, most powerful country, uh, economically and certainly militarily speaking, uh, if they aren't able to engage in transactions in the petro, then people are not going to have any psychological, you know, faith that the petro will be worth anything. So that's got to affect uh, the petro in a big way. Uh, it remains to be seen whether it's going to work. But I, I think that what it does demonstrate is that the government is looking for ways to face this uh, war that's being declared on Venezuela. Um, it's unable to use dollars for these transactions. And so now it's come up with this new currency as a way to uh, face that problem. Hmm. Now, you spoke about uh, external opposition. What about some of the internal players? You, you mentioned that the lockouts in 2002. Right. Uh, are we seeing anything along those lines that's exacerbating the, the situation with the, uh, the food and the uh, medicines and other um, vital needs? Uh, external players. Yeah, I think that the um, hardline position of the U.S. government under Obama and now with Trump – even much more so. It's qualitatively um, much uh, stronger, the opposition uh, of the Trump administration because of the financial embargo uh, and these other measures that, are, that have been taken. It has an effect not only on the Venezuelan economy. And I think that um, there really isn't much talk about how that hardline position coming from the United States uh, is affecting Venezuela in numerous ways. The Maduro government talks about um, the, um, the embargo and its effect on the economy, but it, it goes way beyond that. Um, um, for instance, uh, it, it tends to aggravate the polarization in Venezuela. Venezuela is very polarized. It's been polarized for some time now. But Within the opposition, for instance, there are different currents. There's a, a radical hardline current that uh, opts for uh, electoral abstention um, and declares the Maduro government uh, illegitimate. And there's another current that recognizes that there are elections in Venezuela and that um, it makes sense to participate in the elections. After all, there is widespread discontent with the economic situation. And in an economic crisis situation, people tend to vote uh, on the basis of economic factors so that there is a more moderate, if you want to use that term, current. But what the Trump administration's policy towards Venezuela uh, has meant is that the moderates are kind of shunted aside. And it really means that the radicals are going to really dominate the situation within the opposition. And that's exactly what's happened. Um, <clears throat> just to give one example, uh, Henry Falcon, who was the candidate for president, the main candidate for the opposition, uh, he uh, was told by the Trump administration that if he participated in the elections, the presidential elections um, uh, in April, that uh, he would be placed on the list of the people who are sanctioned. Um, he participated anyways, but he kind of dropped out the day of the elections, when he announced uh, that these elections were illegitimate, after having participated in the electoral process, the very day of the elections, he had objections 
to, for instance, the distance between the voting centers and the tables that were set up by the Chavistas to try to influence people. You know, when they show up to vote, there's a table and the Electoral Council stipulated that those tables had to be 100 uh, meters from the voting center. And in some cases, they were less than 100 meters. So Falcon's changed position. Um, uh, he's more recently taken a hardline position towards Maduro, uh, I think has a lot to do with that polarization pr- process within the opposition. Um, the military, when Trump says that a, a military coup would be successful, um, uh, and Marco Rubio uh, encourage, encourages explicitly a military coup in Venezuela, um, and there's talk of a possible military intervention on the part of when Trump uh, and other officials in the Trump administration talks about talk about um, the fact that the military option is not being discarded. It also um, includes uh, the head of the Organization of American States, Luis Almagro. That's uh, right. An announcement. Almagro also talked about the possibility of a military coup and military intervention. Numerous op-eds as well. In the- and, and as a matter of fact, the other Latin American countries, even though those governments tend to be very rightist and centrist and very anti-Maduro, uh, nevertheless, they, they oppose any kind of military intervention. But in spite of that, you know, I, I don't think that a military intervention, at least an overt kind of, you know, um, boots on the ground. Libya style. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see that as happening in the short-term future, but I think that the strategy there is to encourage uh, people in the military, military officers, to turn against Maduro. So this st- also strengthens the hands of the military officers within the uh, Maduro administration. So this has an effect on Venezuelan democracy. You know, Michael, everybody knows that war and democracy are incompatible. And so this warlike atmosphere that's being created, the possibility of a military intervention, the possibility of uh, a military coup in Venezuela, that that polarizes the situation and radicalizes not only the opposition, but within the Chavista government, um, you also have a situation in which the military um, w- the, the military would have greater presence within the government. Uh, more officers are being named to top positions within the cabinet, for instance. Um, and in addition to that, you know, there's a serious problem of corruption in Venezuela. Uh, and the fact that the military apparently is off limits. Uh, you know, there are, mm. uh, are investigations... Uh, promoted by the government, the, the, the Attorney General, Tyrek William Saab, is conducting these investigations and a number of people in the oil industry, a number of top executives, have been jailed as a result of accusations of corruption. But the military is off limits. Um, and so I think that has a lot to do with the fact that Maduro is more dependent on the military as a result of the possibility of a military in- intervention in Venezuela. So these sanctions... And this hardline approach that really dates back to the Obama administration is having a big impact on Venezuela in a number of ways. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour. My name is Michael Welch. I'm joined here by Steve Elner, is a professor at the Université du Oriente at Puerto 
in Puerto La Cruz, Venezuela. He's here as um, on actually at the start of his uh, tour through Canada and the United States, um, speaking on uh, the situation in Venezuela. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the internal forces, the opposition internally, and and who they are. We've heard a lot about these uh, protests that have been taking place, the street protests, Mm -hmm. uh, non-violent civil disobedience in the wake of people desperate to uh, protect themselves from the the, the Maduro government's, um, you know, heavy-handed uh, and, and undemocratic and illegitimate behavior. And, and this has been echoed, of course, by foreign governments in the United States and Canada. Um, could you speak to, uh, you know, from what you've seen on the ground, uh, yeah. the, these protests and, and who who are the, the people behind them and, and what are they, what, what is their agenda, if right. you put it that way? Well, th- these protests um, date back in time. Uh, but the big ones occurred in 2014 and 2017. And in both cases, they lasted four months. Uh, in Spanish, in Venezuela, uh, the term that's used is guarimba. Um, I think it's an indigenous word. Um, and it refers to the, the street uh, violent and nonviolent protests. And what took place was uh, really a combination of civil disobedience and uh, uh, usually in the daytime, and in the nighttime, violent confrontation with security forces, specifically the National Guard and the police forces. And these protests in 2014 were limited to the middle class, uh, upper middle class areas, the upper middle class municipalities that are run by the opposition. So, you know, you have a social polarization in Venezuela as well, in which the, the mayors of the big cities um, tend to be Chavista, and the mayors of the middle class, upper middle class municipalities tend to be opposition. So that in 2014, these protests were, were concentrated in the middle class areas. The Chavista is saying that one of the reasons, there are two reasons. One is that the opposition doesn't have any support in the barrios. And secondly, they're getting tacit support, for, and in some cases, more explicit support from these uh, opposition mayors. In 2017, the same thing took place, with, the, ex- with the, the difference being that these protests extended to the municipalities, not, not to the barrios. There was very little in, in the poor um, uh, slum areas. The people who would be you'd most expect would be the most uh, affected by sure, the Sure, because in the municipalities uh, in which the mayor is a Chavista, there are middle class areas, naturally. And so the, the protests extended to the middle class areas of some of the cities where the mayors, but for the most part, the protests were located in the cities where the mayors were members of the opposition. The second thing to point out is that the civil disobedience um, was an attempt to really shut down Venezuela. They were located in strategic areas. And for the most part, there wasn't a massive number of people. I saw, for instance, uh, in, a, in 2017, in a number of areas, almost all the areas that were shut down, almost all the main drags and intersections and strategic locations that were set down, uh, I saw just a handful of people. 
in one case, uh, I, I did see about, I counted a, about 100 people. But in a lot of cases, there were, you know, between three and 10 people who were shutting down these main intersections uh, day after day for a period of four, four months. Now, in the, in the upper, in, in the municipalities where the protests were concentrated, there were more people. And I don't mean to say that these were just a handful of people. There, there were a large number of people who participated in these protests, especially if you consider that they were taking place um, or for uh, many, many hours. So it wasn't just like a couple of people showed up and shut down traffic for a couple of hours. Um, now, the, I believe that the government decided not to move in to try to clear the, the streets of the protesters and the barricades uh, fires, boulders, um, to block the traffic, uh, because the protesters were claiming that they had a right to do this, that this was their constitutional, their democratic right to protest. Uh, but the thing is that the protests were not on the sidewalks. All of them were on the streets blocking traffic for a substantial period of time. Now, the Chavista people were saying, look, if this happened in the United States, uh, you know, civil disobedience in the United States People may uh, believe that people have a right to protest through civil disobedience, but the government has a right to uh, to show up and jail these people. Um, and this is what happens in the United States. So the Chavistas were saying, you know, if you guys did this in the United States, you you would be in, be in jail. Now, it didn't Beyond ha- that, there's the fact that there actually was a coup in, in 2002 against Chavez. And right, so there's also right. the prospect that, you know. And, and the, the protests, the, practically the only banner uh, of the protesters, they weren't protesting in favor of specific uh, demands other than um, regime change. The, 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 the main banner was regime change. In fact, the, the slogan uh, in 2014 was Salida, originally was Salida Ya, which means uh, regime change now. Then they dropped the ya, yeah, but it was regime change. That, that was their uh, banner. They were also calling for the release of political prisoners. Now, some of the prisoners, uh, I mean, th- these were prisoners who were um, uh, rounded up during these protests. Uh, and um, like I say before, th- the protests were peaceful in the daytime, but not in the nighttime. And there were con- violent confrontations between the police and the protesters, and there were a lot of deaths. In 130, two, is in, in 2014, there were thir- 30-something, I think 36 deaths. And in 2017, 130-something. Uh, um, now, the Chavistas were saying that a, a majority of these deaths were not people who were protesting. Um, in 2014, for instance, there were six National Guardsmen who were killed and one or two policemen who were killed. So... You know, it really all depends on who you talk to. When you, if you talk to the Chavistas, they would say, look, in the United States, uh, if a policeman, let alone a military person, National Guards, I mean, this is military, you kill a military person in the United States, what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. So that was what the Chavistas were saying. The opposition was saying, we have a right to protest. Um, but like I say, the protests were not legal in the sense that um, they were not on sidewalks. They were on the streets. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, just a little bit of time left, but I, 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 <clears throat> I noticed that with all the dialogue that we've heard uh, about Venezuela, uh, there's uh, the, the, the talk largely focuses on Maduro, the leaders, and and the opposition, but they don't. You don't hear so much about the supporters 
Mm-hmm. Uh, not just that they're supporters, but <clears throat> the fact that there, there's large numbers of people who are actually responsible for the rise of Chavez in the first place, right. and uh, that they're they're. Uh, they're going to continue to uh, to organize. Yeah. They're going to continue in, in the interests yeah. of the wider world. So, uh, given that the presence right. of those individuals, uh, you know, what uh, what are your uh, I guess prescription or what are, what are your predictions uh, yeah. in the years ahead as this uh, these oppressive forces seem to be bearing down on right. the country? How? resilient are the uh, yeah. the, the forces uh, in support of the Bolivarian yeah. resolution? Michael, that, it's a very good question because it has a lot to do with um, the perception uh, uh, from countries like Canada and it has a lot to do with the policies that governments are pursuing. Because if you perceive that the government is completely isolated um, and that it's not, it doesn't have important following, you tend to support regime change uh, in one form or another. Um, but the fact of the matter is that, firstly, the opposition is very weak. There's no question about that. The opposition political parties, now the, the media, the private sector, the church hierarchy, which was opposed to, the Ch- was opposed to Chavez and is now opposed to Maduro, um, that's a different story. But the political parties of the opposition, the parties that would be in power if the government w- w- were to be overthrown, uh, they, they they are not at all popular in Venezuela for a number of reasons, which I could get into. Uh, but just one uh, is the fact that they don't have a program. They, 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 they don't transmit anything other than regime change. That, that, that's their practically their sole banner at this point. I mean, they, they do have a program, but, it's, but they're not transmitting that program. They're all about regime change. So that's the opposition. Um, the Spanish government uh, under Pedro Sanchez is saying, look, uh, we want to be a positive factor in bringing about negotiations and bringing about a negotiated solution to the problems of Venezuela. And it seems to me that that is the most viable uh, possibility, that a a hardline approach to Venezuela, which attacks Maduro and calls for regime change and calls for a coup d'etat in Venezuela, it's not going to be a long-term solution, firstly, because of the weakness of the opposition, and secondly, as you point out, uh, Maduro has a following, not as much as Chavez had, but it's a significant following, and that's not going to go away. Well, with that, Steve Elner, I, I think we have to go now, but I, I really appreciate uh, your taking the time to converse with us on this subject. And I want to remind our listeners, our, our Winnipeg-based listeners, that uh, uh, Steve Elner will be speaking at uh, a public forum, What is Really Happening in Venezuela, at 7 p.m. on October 19th, that's tonight, at the Fort Garry Hotel at 222 Broadway. And for more information, you can visit the site www.nosanctions.org. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week. 